So it's a good morning, and it's a good morning because it's a new day. And if it's a new day, that means that there are new mercies. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. And I just do believe that it is good for the sake of our faith. It's good for the sake of our joy to be reminded that our God is the God of new mercies and that he has promised to provide us with new mercies each and every day. He has promised to provide that which we need each and every day, and he's promised to provide that which is in our best interest each and every day. Now, here's the the thing real quick about new mercies. They don't always look the way that we want the new mercies to look. Uh, Some new mercies do come to us in the form of trials. Some new mercies do come to us in the form of tribulation and hardship and, and tough seasons. And we need to remember that those new mercies, though they're difficult, are still a good thing. They're good for us because God uses those difficulties, the hardships, to do a work in us. He, he uses the trial in order to, to forge our faith in him, to make it stronger. He uses the, the, the trials in order to help us to develop an empathy toward other people. So these are good things. Uh, so when we go through a tough time, just remember that it will pass. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. You may be screaming and and asking for medicine and all kinds of relief, but it will pass sooner or later one way or the other. Um, And just remember that if you're going through one of those kidney stone kind of new mercy moments in your life, that nothing is wasted in the hands of God. Every tear, every trial, he somehow uses it in this incredible way for our good. As we sang a while ago, that God works all things for the good for those who love him. So just know, if you're going through a hardship, it is a new mercy. And speaking of hardships and gnashing of teeth, today we're talking about parenting. Okay. Isn't that hard? Okay, all right. Don't leave me out to dry like that as if that's not funny or something. All right, so open up your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. We're in the Old Testament. It's the fifth book of the Bible, book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And today we are wrapping up this little series that we call Home. We've been talking about what it means to have a good home what the, and how can we go about improving our home. And we've looked at this from a lot of different viewpoints. So not just our household home, uh, but we've talked about our community. So we talked about how Anthem Church and Anthemers, how we're supposed to help make our community a better home for the people who live around us. Uh, When we we talked about God as home, he invites us to make him our dwelling place, place, our refuge, our sanctuary, our fortress. God says to us, make me your home. And that's a good thing given how difficult and and, uh, hard the world can be. We've talked about church as home. This is our, our home church. This is to be a family. God has crewed us up together as brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other, support each other, love each other, be there for one another. That's a good thing. We all need a good church home. Last week, we turned our attention to what we consider 
uh, home, home proper, like our household, right? So we talked about marriage last week, and today it is embarrassing for me to talk about it because all of you clearly, obviously, are, are masters of it, but we're talking about parenting today. And so here's, here's what I know about my personal uh, experience with this. I was living my life. I was doing my own thing. Uh, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I found myself in the delivery room. Theoretically, I had a concept of the idea or the notion that I would find myself in a delivery room because I knew that Jamie was pregnant. And we had been to Lamaze class, says. Those are awful. But anyway, like, <laughs> so like I knew that I would find myself in there, and I don't know if it's just the dude in me, like it just, but it never really occurred to me, what's that going to be like? When's it going to happen? It was just a, this ethereal, nebulous possibility. Well, next thing I know, I'm in a delivery room, and I tell you, as a guy, I don't know, I guess maybe women think about this a lot more than we do, but it is jarring. It is, nothing, nothing could have prepared me for that, for that moment. So there I am. It, 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 it's hard to see someone that you love, your wife, in that much pain and in that much discomfort. And, and I know that I never cry, but I did find myself tearing up and, and crying in the delivery because I genuinely felt so bad for her. Like the, the, the awfulness of like, I know now why they call it labor. Like it's so hard, the pain of it. And I was trying to encourage her through, like, in between, like, my, my snots and cries and, and weeping and the, and the sucks. <gasps> you can make it. You can do it, right? Like, I'm trying to encourage her. And, and finally, around hour 20, that God thing happened in Jamie where the mom gene turned on. And let me tell you, she, if you know Jamie, and she's running slides today, very meek, demure, quiet, unassuming. Y'all know Jamie, right? Mm-mm. <laughs> when that thing clicked on, she literally said, this baby is coming out now. <laughs> and I took a step backwards, and she went to work. She went to work, and it was amazing. I sat down, I'm like, you go, girl. Like, <laughs> And next thing I know, a human came out of a human. That, to me, is madness. That you cannot prepare yourself for that moment. So we're in the hospital for two days. I'm completely convinced that's for the guy. Because <laughs> it took two days for me to calm down. Like, what did I just witness? <laughs> She's ready to go home two minutes later, right? So I'm the one needing Valium and medication. So after two days in the hospital, uh, it's time to go home. And, and next thing we know, we're like strapping this little newborn into a car seat. And driving home at 20 miles an hour. <laughs> and you finally get home. And I remember to this day, we put the car seat in the middle of the living room. And we stood back. <laughs> like, now what? What do we do now? And, and the, the truth of the whole thing is that it wasn't just a baby that was birthed. Parents were born, too. And just like that baby then is trying to figure out what are these, what are these 
you know, and, and what are these hands? Like, how do I control these? Like, the, just like the baby's trying to make sense of this new world that they've stepped into, so, so do we as parents are trying to make sense of, like, oh, what is this? What do I do? And, and the, the same question, me and Jamie asked the same question today, now, where we find ourselves with four. We finally figured out what was causing that. And, and so now we've got four, and we asked the same question today, at, with a 10-year-old, and an 8-year-old, 6-year-old, and a 4-year-old. The same question today that we asked that day with the first one that first day. Now what? What do we do? How, how do we do this? And, and we live in a world where I think parenting advice has been professionalized. There are thousands of books on the subject. Conferences, seminars, blogs, podcasts on it. Some of it is a little bit helpful. A lot of it, I mean, I think it only causes us guilt and shame because we haven't mastered some parenting technique or some parenting philosophy. And so, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to damage your kid forever. So, like, it causes some fear and trepidation. And then the, other, the rest of the parenting advice really is really no different than diet advice. It's just like what the new fad is, and it's constantly changing. Like, here's keto parenting, and here's paleo parenting, and intermittent fasting parenting. Like, and it's always like a fad, and it's changing, and it contradicts. Like, one of them saying, you know, like, just like with diet, don't eat meat. Always eat meat. Like, which is it? One causes cancer. The other one causes cancer. Well, one's better. Like, how do you know? Well, parenting's the same way. Do this, don't do that. And they contradict. And parenting is hard enough as it is without, like, these so-called experts telling this stuff that contradicts and just confuses us even more. So the good thing is, why not just go to God? Why not just ask God? God, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me out? Because I'm pretty sure he's the one who knit that child in the womb, and he is the one who entrusted that child into our care. One thing I do know is this, is that 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 God in heaven that we sing about, he loves that child way more than we ever possibly could. So we can just go to the Lord. Lord, just help me. And we can go to God for good advice in order for us to become or grow into or grow as good parents. And so I'm just going to, like, just say this off the get-go. If you walk out with only one thing, just walk out with this. Good parenting is simply striving to raise a love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled follower of Jesus. Striving to the best of your ability to help that little one grow and become a follower of Jesus. Now, ultimately, you have no control whether they do or not because the individual will make up their own mind. Okay? But as parents, a good parenting is simply trying our best to do all that we can to help them to grow as a follower of Jesus. So with that, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. They're going to be on the screen. So just just look there. Starting in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. So we, as parents, whether you have natural parents or your natural parents and have given birth, or whether you've adopted or whether you foster, you know, this applies even to grandparents and helping to raise, you know, grandchildren. We've been given a great stewardship. We have been instructed by God to instruct these little ones. And we should do so with the greatest of urgency. Because I'm pretty sure of one thing. I believe that the children are the future. And we should teach them well and let them lead the way. Those are just words that I live by. In instructing our children, like it's, if you've tried it, if you've ever taken a shot at it, it is as difficult a thing on planet Earth as there is. There may not be anything more difficult than trying to raise somebody. We've got one amen. You've got to preach. All right. So I think the text offers us at a minimum of what I'm calling three good parenting principles that, that I, I, are just in this text and, and I hope that today will just help us to grow as good parents. I don't know if we could ever be good parents, but we could at least take some steps into growing into good parents. So here are three good parenting principles. Number one, good parenting begins with good theology. Good parenting begins with right doctrine, with right personal belief and conviction about what is in fact true. It begins with good theology. And that's where this text that I just read, that's actually where it begins. It begins with good theology. In verse 4, verse 4 makes one of the most profound statements that there is in the entire Bible about who God is. It says, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. So Moses wrote these words. Moses wrote these words and addressed them to the Israelites at a time where the entire world was polytheistic. So all the people and all the nations and everyone believed in multiple, numerous, all sorts of gods. So in ancient Egypt, they worshipped Ra, who was the, sun, the, the god of the sun. And they worshipped Osiris, who was the god of the dead. And they worshipped Bastet, who was the god of cats or demons as I would call them. <laughs> and so people back then believed, I'm sorry if you're a cat person. All right, so people believed in all kinds of gods and that these gods individually exercised a certain oversight or dominion over a very specific aspect of life. So there was a God of fertility. There was a God of cattle. There was a God of the, the moon. There was a, a God of the weather. There were all sorts of gods. So here in verse 4, Moses presents something that is categorically different than the world had ever known. God revealed himself to Moses and so Moses knew the truth, and so here he explicitly makes this statement. Because Moses knew one thing. There aren't many gods in charge of different things. There is one God who's in charge of 
all things. That's what the Lord is one means in the text. There is one and only one true living God. He is the creator who created everything out of nothing. He is the ultimate authority, the only authority in this world. So life and death are under his dominion. Night and day are under his dominion. Heaven, earth, and everything in hell as well is under the dominion and the authority of God, it all belongs to him, all power, every ounce of it, everything belongs to God. He is the king of glory. Everything that he decrees, because God is enthroned, everything that he decrees, everything that he says is a divine fiat. It is spoken in that which he says wants desires. His will does take place and nothing can stop it. Ultimate power, ultimate glory, ultimate dominion. And he does it all with wisdom and in kindness. Because he's not a tyrant. He's not a bully or a dictator. Like totalitarian in a negative sense. He's all-powerful God over everything. Sovereign ruler. But he does everything with kindness and gentleness and with grace. That is who God is. The Lord is one. Everything is under him, and he does everything one way. In holiness, with wisdom, love, compassion, with justice. The one God over everything does everything one way. The Lord is one. So good theology begins with us knowing that there is one God and only one God and that he is good. That's good theology. Good theology begins with us embracing that everything that we want that is good and right comes from his hand and his hand only. Good theology begins with us believing in him, the one and only God who's over everything, placing our faith in him and casting our life into his hands. That's good theology. To do anything other than to fully believe in the one God and place our faith in the one God and trust in the one God, to do anything other than that is to follow false gods. Gods who don't listen to us because they can't, because they're not real and they don't have ears. To do anything than trust the one and only God is to, to be disappointed because we're following false gods who can't, Satisfy us because they're not real. They can only disappoint us because they're not real. So to do anything other than to fully like walk in and follow the one and only God is to, is to just pursue falsehood, to pursue lies, to court hopelessness. All hope and all joy and all peace is found in the one and only God. So if I'm not going to God for those things, anywhere or anything else that I try to find those things, I'm going to find the opposite. So either I'm courting God, my relationship with him, like seeking him, or I'm literally courting hopelessness and despair and darkness. The Lord is one. Think of it this way. The Lord is one-stop shopping. 
He is the one that we go to for everything that we need. He is the one that we go to for everything that is good and right. The Lord is one. And I love my kids, my four. I love them. Man, I want them to know good theology. I don't want them to follow false theology, false gods, or false hope. That's, that's in their worst interest. I want what's in their best interest. Trust the Lord. Know him. Follow him. Go to him. Like, I want them to know that. But for my kids to know that, i got to teach them that. Well, how can I teach them that if I haven't learned that? How can I teach them that if I don't believe that, if I haven't accepted that, if I haven't grown in it and live it out? So the first question to all the parents in the room is, what do you believe? What's your confession? Do you confess that the Lord is one? I mean, do you believe that wholeheartedly? Do you follow that? Do you live that? Because good parenting begins with good theology. So we always need to be growing in this. So it's always a good thing, you know, find a church. Like if it's Anthem Church, folks, whoever preaches, whether it's me or Brent or John or Perry or Shannon or whomever ever preaches, we preach the gospel. We preach the Bible. We don't preach conjecture or opinion or perspective. No, we preach what God's word says. So if Anthem to church, praise God, you're at a church that preaches the gospel. If this is in your church, find one where it is preached. But just be a part of a church where that is central and it's a central point to the life because we all need to be growing in right theology. Be in a Bible study group. So we call them A-teams. we got a men's group, a women's group, some co-ed groups. we got youth group. Like there's something supernatural that happens when people are together in a room and they open up God's word and they start reading and they start asking questions. It's amazing. Dare I say that that's really where we grow the most? It's in that kind of setting? It's so helpful. So do that. Read your Bible on your own. If you don't have one, stop by the info table and grab one of these, and that's our free gift to you because we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. And then go to YouTube. I'm sorry, <laughs> YouTube. YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version.com, and you can access it through our website. It says Bible Reading Plan on our website, and there's Bible Reading Plan. So where do I begin? How do I read the Bible? And it just guides you, and just follow that. And if that's too impersonal, come and ask me, and I'll say, all right, well, let's Starting James. or I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? It's just God's Word. On top of that, I would, I would recommend certain books to everyone. So there's a recommended reading list on the screen. I will put this on Facebook this week. I'll make sure it's on our website. It'll be in the newsletter. If you ever get through this list of books, come to me. I got another list of books for you. It'll take you a while to get through these, but these are good scholars and teachers and pastors that just God uses and are teachers to not just a church, but the church. So, like, get some of these readings and, like, learn and grow. Don't, don't, just, don't just rely on what granny taught you 30 years ago. We're always forgetting, so we always need to be learning So, good parenting begins with good theology. We're called to teach, but that means we first have to be students. We first have to be learners. Okay?
All right. Number two, good parenting principle number two. Good parenting flows from a love of God. In verse 5, so Deuteronomy 6, 5, it calls on us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all our soul and all of our might. It asks us, it commands us, it instructs us. Like once you know the truth that God is one, the very next thing that we're told to do with that truth is love him. Love him because of who he is. So, again, this was written originally, initially by Moses, and it was written or spoken to the Israelites. So they're the ones initially, thousands of years ago, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, right? Well, why should they? Why should they love the Lord? It's because a minute earlier, they were rescued from imprisonment and enslavement. Just before these words were stated, the Israelites were a slave nation under the tyranny of Pharaoh. They were in Egypt in bondage, oppressed in hardship. They were under the whip of a tyrant. They were, they were just maltreated in the worst of ways. And there was nothing that they could do about it. There were several million Israelites They could not muster up a rebellion or revolt against the Pharaoh. He was too powerful. His army was too powerful. His strength was too powerful. They could not break free of this yoke of oppression that they were under. The only thing that they could do was to cry out to God for mercy, for freedom. And God, because he's a kind and gentle and loving God, God listened and God lovingly intervened. God raised up a deliverer. He raised up specifically Moses to go and confront Pharaoh. And through Moses, God operated these incredible miracles. God flexed his muscles. And there were a series of these supernatural events that persuaded Pharaoh said, maybe I should let these people go. And he did. He relented. So through that, God won the freedom of an entire nation of people, entire people group rescued out of enslavement and bondage and oppression because of a God that loves them. See, that's the answer to the question, why should Israel love God? It's because God loved them and proved it. Is that not the gospel? That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel of Jesus. All of us are born into a slave nation. All of us were born into enslavement of sin. And it is the worst of tyrants. It is the worst of dictators. Folks, every one of us, we come into this world and we are at its whip. And it is driving us. To, to more and more sin. It is driving us in despair. It's driving us to destruction. Raise your hand if anything good just ever came out of sin. No. Nothing good comes out of it. It's only harmful. It's only hurtful. It's only damaging in every possible way. Nothing good comes out of it. Yeah, I don't think I can do this. But I got to make the point. So just a few days ago, my college roommate died. Lived with him for two and a half years. I was in his wedding. I was the only non-family at his wedding years ago. 
John struggled. He was highly troubled for a long time. Uh, battled alcohol. Lost sense of who he was. Um, very smart guy when I met him. Ambition. Went into sales. The best salesman you would ever want to meet. Talented. Lost it all. Lost his family. His wife. His children. Lost it all. Struggled. And for years. And I tried to share Jesus with him. There's a deliverer. Alcohol doesn't need to own you. You don't need to live in hopelessness. God loves you. He sent his son. Jesus went to the cross to remove you from that bondage and that slavery to that. That's what Jesus did. He went to the cross. Got an addiction? Let me take that from you. Let me break you free of that. You've been hurt by a spouse in the past? Let me take that pain from you. You've done something you're not proud of? Let me take that off of Let me remove that off your ledger. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's, what, that's why we talk about his death and his blood and the sacrifice. He laid down his life. And sometimes it feels like a cliche. We say it so much, it becomes like white noise and, and we're just Christian rhetoric. But at the end of the day, this is about Jesus saving us from ourselves from the horrors that we cause and that people cause in us and the damage, and it's brutal. And unfortunately, my friend, for whatever reason, he just wouldn't step into the love of God. He wouldn't step into grace. He just, for whatever reason, chose not to, and he drank himself to death. And that's what he wanted. So I'm going to have to sit there and watch Facebook. And all these people that don't know any better, well, maybe he's at peace now. No. If you had just heard for real, God loves you. And we're surrounded by an ocean of people who are no different. They're hurting just as much. They're hurting just as much. They need to know that God loves them. We need to argue over carpet color in a church or music style or worship style. Invent problems when there's people that have very real problems, and it is our mission to tell them just how much Jesus loves them and that he died for them. That's the gospel. And so i got to ask everyone in this room, because I can never make any assumptions. I don't know who you are or what brought you here or what your past is. Have you embraced the love of God? Have you, better yet, let me just say it even more theologically sound. Have you allowed yourself to be embraced by the love of God? Have you? I'm not asking you if you're a churchgoer, if you go to church every once in a while and you throw a few bucks in the plate every once in a while. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, have you succumbed to the grace of God? Are you a follower of Jesus? It's because God loves us that we should love him with all our heart, 
with all our mind and soul and strength and our body and everything that is in us because he gave everything for us. So do you love him? Can you say, I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. Can you say that? We're to lead our kids to love the Lord with all their hearts. How can we possibly begin to do that if we ourselves don't love the Lord with all of our heart? Good parenting flows from a love of God, a love of the Lord. And that battle for our kids begins within us as parents. Number three, good parenting shepherds the child's heart. Shepherds the child's heart. Look at verses 7 through 9 again. You shall teach them. Them there is referring to God's word, God's instruction, God's truth, right? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. I'm, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Back in verse 7, it tells us to teach, right? It says to teach. Shepherding means teaching. Teaching the things of God to your child. So teaching means to explain. It means to help someone to understand. To understand. Much parenting simply focuses on the what. In, in essence, two times two is what? Four, right? Most of our parenting is just that. And while as parents, we should be focusing on the what. Well, we, oh, excuse me, let me say it this way. Our parenting should always teach the what, but we should focus on the why. It's not just enough to say two times two is four. That's the what. Why is two times two four? That's way more important. That's empowering if they know the actual reason why. It's easy and tempting for us to spend all of our time just on the what, on behavior and behavior modification. Do this. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's bad. Don't do as I do. Do as I say. Folks, good parenting does absolutely teach the what and the when and the how and the with who. We ab- that's part of it. But what is more important is helping the child understand the why behind the what and the how and the when and the with who. The why is way more valuable. We have to spend way more time explaining rather than commanding. That's shepherding. you got to explain, not just simply command. Well-behaved children is not a worthy goal. That is not the goal. Not for a good parent. Our goal cannot be behavior modification. Our goal as parents has to be heart gospel transformation. That's the goal. That's a worthy goal. So Ted Tripp, famous writer, he's president of Shepherding the Heart Ministries. He wrote this. A change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commendable. It is condemnable. 
It is condemnable. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 15, he rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew 15 because they're, they paid lip service to God, but they didn't live it. It wasn't in their heart, I should say. They, they lived it in an external way, right? On the outside, they looked all religious, and they looked apart, and they acted a certain way, but it wasn't in their heart. They were far from the Lord. So as parents, if we spend the majority of our time parenting, if, if most of that time is just simply on do's and don'ts, we're guilty of raising the next generation of legalistic Pharisees. If that's all we're doing, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, stop that, stop that, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. All we're doing is whitewashing sinners. All we're doing is taking a gravestone that has feet on it and saying, go, go out into the world. So here's a common mistake. Let me illustrate here the difference. Two kids are playing. One kid has a toy. They're playing with it. And the other kid decides, you know what, that looks like a fun toy to play with. Let me grab it. And they grab it. What happens to the other kid? Man, they, they go nuts. They go crazy. They start crying because kid two took the toy from kid one, right? So then you hear the crying and you hear the fussing and you hear the fighting and you run into the room. And what do most of us ask? Who had it first? Who had it first? Who took it? You know what we're doing when we do that? We're addressing justice, perhaps, but we're not addressing the heart when we do that. If all that matters is justice, the person who had it first needs to keep it, we're not addressing what is really the behavior. I want what I want, and I don't care if anyone else wants it, and I'm going to have it because everyone should bow to me and my desires and my screaming. That's actually enabling wrong behavior, is it not? Is that not just creating Pharisees and legalists? It's like we should resist the temptation to give in to this notion that just give it back to the first one. That's easy. That's actually easy to do, but that damages the kid. What our role as parents, if we want to be good parents the way God wants us to, we have to address the heart and expose the wrong behavior. Sit down with them, and you're going to sit there for a minute, an hour, 30 years, explaining to them why that selfishness is bad and wrong, and explaining to them why they should be motivated to be the opposite, which is humble and loving and selfless and generous with whatever it is that they have in their hand. That's hard, isn't it? That's the role of a parent. We have to, we have to confront the sinful behavior. You have to. Absolutely. Don't lie. Tell the truth. You have to expose the sin, but you have to do it in a way that helps them to understand why it's a sin and why the alternative is better. And, folks, that is so much work. So, I mean, you, it's, it's easier to just beat your head against a brick wall, right? It's hard work. And here's the truth that I want everyone to understand this morning. Parenting which takes the path of least resistance, puts your child on the path of most destruction. 
path of least, res re least resistance as a parent. Do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do, do that. Command, command, command. That's the easy thing to do. I can bribe my kid to do something. I can fear mongrel my kid to do something or not do something. I can manipulate them. I can shame them. Folks, it is easy to address behavior and to correct it or modify it. It's really easy. That's the path of least resistance. That puts my child on the path of most destruction, however. All I'm doing is raising a Pharisee, a legalist, a tomb with feet. What our kids need are parents who actually love them, roll up their sleeves, and teach the why. And the why is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of God. Stop lying. Here's why. Because God loves you. Because Jesus died for you. He's not going to love you any less because of that, that, that lie. He's not going to love you more because you, you told the truth. But God loves you so much, shouldn't you want to do what he asked you to do? Teach the why. Our kids need gospel transformation, not behavior modification. They need parents who point them to Christ. Point them to Christ. Point them to Christ. That's loving. That's shepherding. Shepherding means teaching. And it also requires a consistent lifestyle. And you see this in verse 7. Teach them diligently. Diligently. Persist in this. Be faithful in this. Be consistent in this. Don't give up. Be diligent. Be diligent. Be diligent to teach your children. Always talk about the things of God. Always talk about the truth of God. Talk about the grace of God, who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. Always be talking about it all the time, anywhere, at home, outside at home, going to the grocery store, going on vacation, at vacation. Always is an opportunity. Morning, when you get up, nighttime is what the scriptures say. Like all the time. Like you, everything is an opportunity to talk about the Lord. In verse 8, it's just to bind his word on our hands and on like in between our, our eyes. It doesn't mean to get a tattoo. I mean, you can if you want to, but it doesn't mean to tattoo scripture on you. Verse 9 says to write God's word like literally on your house. It doesn't mean to take paint and shellac Deuteronomy 6 on the side of your house. I mean, you can if you want to. Nothing wrong with that. But the point of it here is that you imprint God's word into your life, on your life, in your home, and into your family. Anyone can tat up a verse. Anyone can put a frame on the wall that says Psalm 27. Actually, bringing it into your heart and trying to administer that into the hearts of your children, that's where it's at. That's what matters. Shepherding is not a task. Parenting is not a task. It is a lifestyle that demands consistency. All day, every day, all the time, wherever you are. You hear an ambulance? Hey, kids, let's pray for whoever that ambulance is going to rescue Starts raining. Oh, man, I was going to go outside and play. You know what? God made the animals, too, and they need water, too. And God is giving them some water right now. I don't want broccoli. 
God made the broccoli. And that's what he gave our family. Let's, let's be appreciative for what God has given us. Everything is an opportunity. Everything is an opportunity. Consistency is key. So, this is uh, fifth year, maybe sixth year, coaching soccer. Uh, four, five, and six-year-olds, which doesn't really qualify as soccer. Um, I'm like the Bill Belichick of Andrews soccer. Um, you know, it's Bill Belichick in football. He has his, you know, his culture that he drives in. Next man up, do your job kind of a thing. I, I have my soccer culture on my team. It really only comes down to one thing. There's really, honestly, only one thing that I teach those little ones. Keep your eye on the ball. And so this, this, this is everything that I say. This is, I tell the kids from the first practice, this is the most important thing on the field. This is the most important thing on the field. This is it. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Where's the ball? I, I spend all the practice, and we've got 13 on our team, 11 are anthemers, and the parents here will testify to this. I spend the entire practice and the entire game yelling, Where's the ball? Where's the ball? See, they're saying it, right? They knew it. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Don't fa face the ball. Face the ball. Don't turn your back to the ball. Don't turn. The entire game is that. That's all I do. Now, I, I could, just because, I could spend the entire time drilling them how to kick a ball. Especially your four-year-old, they don't know. Instinct is to kick it with your toe. Well, that's incorrect form. You don't kick a ball with your toe. So I could drill them on how to do it. We do it like a 1%, really. I mean, I don't really even give instruction on how. We may pass it, kick it. I don't, I don't spend time on drilling fundamentals, the right way to kick a ball. I don't do that. I could spend the entire time yelling at them, telling them what not to do. Isabel! Stop doing cartwheels. <laughs> Lincoln, get off the net. Start ha stop hanging on the net. Eve, quit digging the hole. <laughs> digging a hole in the middle of the field. Ivy, stop running off the field. And technically, I would be correct in telling them not to do those things. Because those things are not conducive to soccer. But I do, on the field at least, the harder, the better, the more necessary work. Teaching them, keep your eye on the ball. Because I know this, if those kids will keep their eye on the ball, everything else will take care of itself. It just will. That's parenting. That's shepherding. Little Susie, Junior, whoever your kid is, the most important thing in life is Jesus. The most important thing is Jesus. Keep your eye on Jesus. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Keep facing Jesus. Where's Jesus at? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Look at Jesus. Find him. Find him. Seek him. Search him out. That's, that's parenting. That's shepherding. 
Because there's this war that is raging for the hearts and minds and souls of our kids. And to quote Ted Tripp again, he wrote this, Life is a classroom. It truly is. Teaching and learning are in process 24 hours a day. Here's the danger. In the absence of biblical formative instruction, secular formative instructors take over. The point is that your kids are always watching and your kids are always learning. And if we don't step into our God-given role to instruct their hearts in the right way, the world with will and everything that the world has to say is destructive and damning and detrimental. We have to fight for our kids. We have to fight for their hearts and for their minds. Now, that falls primarily on the individual parent to do that. But praise God that we don't have to do that by ourselves. Not all of it anyway. What's the whole point of having a church family? Right now, there is a crew of people. And there's many in here that you're in here this week and you'll be in there crewing up the next week teaching our little ones. How good is that? That our little ones are hearing truth in the Bible and they're being taught and it's not just daddy that's doing it. There's other people that are my brothers and sisters in Christ that are speaking those truths, echoing what I'm saying at home, echoing it into their life. Is that not a good thing? We all need that, especially as they become teenagers and they really stop listening to mom and dad. We want them to have relationships with other adults that we trust that are able to speak truth into their life. That's a good thing. So that's why we have Children's Sunday School, Anthem Kids. If you're here, I would ask, if you're not serving there, please help us out. Be another voice. I need you to speak into the life of my children. We need it. The curriculum is wonderful. It is stout. I don't know what to say. I really haven't learned the Bible. Good. Our curriculum tells you everything you need to know, way more than you ever need to know. Our curriculum goes through the Bible once every four years. So if you start teaching Sunday school, you'll go through the Bible. If you've never done it before in four years, you would have completed the entire Bible in a Bible study way, helping to teach other kids. I don't know what it says in the book of so-and-so. That's okay. You just need to stay one lesson ahead of the kids. On our website, under the ministries tab, under the children's tab, click on Connecting Church and Home. We talk about this often. There's a little resource. resource. It is, you click on it, and you get to see a summary of the lesson that your kid gets on Sunday, and there's like prayer points, and I think sometimes a few other things. So use it as an opportunity to invest into the life of your kid and reinforce the very lesson that they hear on Sunday. We got to fight. All right. Good parenting means striving to raise love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. Good parenting is what leadership is. Leadership is making followers of Jesus. Leadership helps others to walk in Christ's likeness. That's what good parenting is. Good parenting begins with good theology. It flows out of a love for God, and it shepherds the heart of our children. 
There's one thing about shepherds that's interesting. They always smell like their sheep. You need to be living with your kids so closely that you smell like them. For some of our kids, that's not a pleasant. (laughs) We just need to be involved in their lives, with them, around them. Good parenting, you know what good parenting is? It's us being a child of God. It's us being a son, daughter of God. And as a son and daughter of God, us reflecting God into this world and into the lives of our kids. That's what it is. Ready? Ready? We're ready, right? I didn't say it was easy, but we're going to go get it. We're going to fight for our kids. Thank you, Lord Father, so much. For this morning, um, I do thank you for your new mercies. I thank you for comfort and peace that are found strictly by your grace through faith in your Son. Lord, I thank you that you do love us and you cared about us enough that you came down to rescue us out of darkness. That we don't need to succumb to the ugliness of this world. It does not need to terrorize us. It does not need to defeat us. Lord, you died to cancel the enemy's grip over us, to cancel sin's grip over us, to cancel darkness' grip over us. You came to lift us out of that slavery, that we may be free and experience freedom to the fullness, which is you and us and us and you. So, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who has not before just given themselves to you and let your love embrace them. Lord, I ask that you would prompt their heart now, that you would prompt their mind and their soul now, that you would, Lord, knock upon their spirit and that they would open up and say yes to you. If there's anyone in here that needs to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will you? Will you do so right now? Say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I confess it. I've been running. I've been rebelling. But I believe now. I believe in your son. I believe you love me. I believe. I give my life. I follow you. I repent for my sin. I turn my life over into your hands. Is that you this morning? For the rest of us, Lord, especially since this message is on parenting, Lord, I I pray that we would take steps daily, weekly, monthly to grow as good parents. That we would devote our lives consistently and diligently to teach and instruct our kids not to browbeat, not to guilt, not to manipulate, but for their good in such a way that it helps to nurture them toward Christ. Lord, I pray for our children that they all would say yes to you, that all of their names would be written in your book, Lord, and from an early age, and that we would be astonished and shocked as they get into their teen years and adult years and move out into this world, Lord. May they leave us in the dust for how you use them, for how you move your kingdom forward in them and through them, Lord. May we marvel at the work that you do in our kids and through them in this world. Lord, may we not just raise kids who graduated college and get a good job, Lord, that's fine, but may we raise kids who know you, who live for you, 
Lord, may we all live as your children, your sons and daughters, reflecting your grace in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.